consumers need a lot more protection. They need people to stand up for their rights financially. And they need more than anything to have this ability to educate themselves about money. This is The Talent Show, a new podcast series from FT Talent, a hub of innovation from the Financial Times. It's hosted by under-30s for the under-30s around the world. This second series is about all the aspects the FT organization is covering today, from editorial to development, from data to talent. I am Virginia Stagni, and this is a guide we designed to inspire you to be the one driving innovation and change. Welcome to the show. Another episode of The Talent Show here at Brackenhouse, one Friday street with the amazing Claire Barrett. Hi, Claire. How are you? Well, very well. Thank you, Virginia. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us. Claire, I think you follow her already on social media. If you don't, please do. You should follow her as well on all the amazing activities she's doing for the Financial Times. So many. She's been, of course, presenting the weekly Money Clinic podcast. She's our FT consumer editor. She is the person that knows everything about money. Claire, how are you today? And um, I would really love to know more about your career. You do so many things. How do you manage your time? How, how do you do all of that? Well, I just never sleep. Um, <laughs> okay. No, one, of, one of my relatives says that I'm like Hermione Granger and I've got some kind of time machine to, to get all of these things done. But I am addicted to to-do lists. If you follow me on Instagram, I'm at Claire B. I've normally got some kind of post up um, about, about to-do lists. I try and organise my time um, really, really well because time is our most valuable asset, actually. Um, not you know, Time is money. What are we spending our time doing? Earning money, learning new skills and all throughout my career. I mean, like you say I'm an expert. I don't feel like an expert, Virginia, because I'm always learning. I'm always looking at what the next story is going to be, trying to work out how to understand it so I can interpret it and explain it to people in a clear way that they'll understand and not be frightened by so that they can take financial control for themselves, make better decisions. But also, I find that with the with the world of finance, you know, there's so much jargon, there's lots of confusion, headaches, worry, rules, you know, the end of the tax year um, is, you know, is fast upon us. So people are trying to do all of this stuff in a hurry on top of everything else. And it is really, really stressful. So I try to make people feel less stressed um, about money, but also to think about it in, in different ways. Now, one thing that the Instagram experts are always telling people is spend your time answering surveys to make a few quid and, you know, start a side hustle. And I kind of think you don't need to, to do those things. It might actually be a better investment of your time to learn a new skill that you can use at work, that you can build up your CV with. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would say invest your time in because it's what I've done. I've always done a little bit of broadcasting on the side just because I've been really keen to get the message out about the stories that I'm writing. And now I spend almost as much time in front of a microphone as I do um, in front of a keyboard, which, yeah. which is great. It makes for a more interesting life. I know you started your career in a space that is very similar to this one, radio. What this has been teaching you in your newsroom life? Okay, so... I did start off as a as a magazine journalist, but in the first job I had, um, which was writing about property, I was also asked to go on the radio a lot to talk about property. So the two things kind of started at the same time. Now, one thing that they do teach you in um, journalism school 
when you've got a really good story, the hardest thing is writing it. And you're always like writing the intro and then you delete it and then you write it again and you delete it and you do this about 50 times. And then the teacher will say, how would you speak it? Tell me what your story is. NatWest Bank has slashed interest rates on its savings accounts and its customers are furious. And then all of a sudden you think, ah, oh, that's the way, that's the way to do it. And it's a bit like that when you do a radio broadcast, but also if you do live radio, which is what I've become more well known for doing, you can't get it wrong and you've got to do it on your feet. So it's a fearsome discipline, but being able to communicate clearly in a way that people can listen Often people absorb the facts better if they're listening to something or if they're watching something, like people who are watching this video on, on YouTube. They might have more chance of taking on some piece of financial knowledge or something to put on their financial to-do list and tick off later if they hear us talking about it or see us um, explaining it. Because that is a, an easier medium often for people to understand than like reading a newspaper article or reading an article online and working out what to do. So I absolutely am so grateful for the fact that I do get to go on TV now every week and on the radio every week to help explain financial things to people and to reach a much wider audience than the Financial Times, but to take those skills that I've honed here working at the paper since 2008, which is when I joined the financial crisis, to help other people feel feel better about their money, but also to have this back channel where they can contact me and say, we want to know more about this, or we want to understand why all of this um, upset is happening with Silicon Valley Bank or can you explain to us if interest rates rising is a good thing or a bad thing how do we sort out our mortgages what do we do about savings accounts you know everyone's got so many questions that they want to ask about money and it's wonderful that I can hear what people want to know and also help to tell them how better to go about their financial business. And I think this is really as well one fundamental part of your job. And it's like understanding why knowing more about money, why feeling confident around money, it's important for financial literacy, for independence, for freedom, etc. But very first question for you, Claire, how did you um, turn interested, I don't, I'm not going to use expert again, like a constant learner <laughs> in the world of money? What made you click with this topic at the beginning of your career? Well, I've always been really interested in money. And it's partly because I started earning money when I was very young. I was 15 when I had my first job selling guitars in a music shop. Um, Are you a musician? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm a musician as well. Oh, that's so Never great. made any money from that, I hasten to add. I made a little bit in the, in, in the early years. But because I was earning my own money, I understood the value of it. So I'd get paid £20 out of the till at the end of Saturday. You kind of think, well, I know what I had to do to earn that £20. Um, I understand the value of it. Now I need a haircut, but I haven't got any money left. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna save it. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be better with it. So I also started work um, at 18 when I finished school. I didn't go to university straight away because of the music because I, I wanted to try and get in a band and you know we did put some records out. They didn't do very well, but I had this sales job um, nice. for for two years before I went to university. So I had to understand um, moving from selling guitars to selling computers I had to understand percentages I had to understand the impact of applying sales tax to things doing a deal you know getting somebody to commit to something making an acceptable level of profit hitting the targets getting paid in commission 
um, if I did really well and sold lots of stuff. So that was quite instructive. And I was also doing outbound telesales calls, which is one of the best pieces of training I ever had as a journalist, even though it was nothing to do with journalism. Earning my own money, being financially independent, being responsible with money. By the time I went to university, I was head and shoulders above other friends who I who I made there because I'd been used to earning money and saving money for quite a few years. So naturally, they all looked to me as the person who would say, right, well, let's all put in um, £10 of our own money every week and we'll have like two nights where we'll cook a, a, a meal together because it will be more cost effective than everybody cooking their own thing. And this sort of grew and, you know, we had parties and we had Christmas dinners and, you know, all, all kinds of stuff. So it just sort of really grew from there. And then when I became a journalist, the first publication I worked on was a, was a property one. I was very interested in property. I think anybody can be interested in property. And then understanding the financials behind it then came more naturally to me because it was something I was interested in. And then from there, personal finance was really the next stage. And I've always been somebody who's wanted to help others help themselves with money. So I've learned this, but this is what I've learned. To avoid you making the same mistake, then this could be a piece of valuable information. And really, that's how it all, it all started. I get a kick out of helping other people to be better yeah. with their own money, but also learning from my own mistakes. And I've always been very honest about admitting when I have got things wrong, because I think as money experts, we can be off-putting. Because people who are listening to the podcast or watching this on YouTube might think, oh, I could never do that. Yeah. And I used to think the same. So you can do it um, and I help you do it and believe that you can. Claire, one, um, uh, one question I, I have for you. Why you didn't go then in the financial services or financial advisor sector and you went to Boring. editorial? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I've, always, I've always wanted to be a hack, as we say. Um, journalism is all about uncovering the stuff that people don't want you to know. It's about campaigning for change. I've always been a campaigner. Ever since I turned up at school age 13 in my Dr. Martin boots, and one of the teachers said, girls can't wear them anymore because they're unladylike, whereas boys can. And that was the beginnings of my journalistic career at the age of 13. So I, I started a petition. I phoned up the local paper. We overturned their stupid ban. Um, and <laughs> girls were allowed to wear Dr. Martins. And that really brought me out of myself because I was actually quite shy at school before that. But nevertheless, um, it's the campaigning spirit of journalism that's so needed in the financial world at the moment because consumers have been given a rubbish ride by the mm. cost of living crisis, but also by financial companies. Mm. Look at the growth of buy now, pay later. Completely yeah. unregulated yeah. and people are falling um, into deeper and deeper debt the longer that they fail to, to regulate it. So get a move on with that. Cryptocurrency, completely unregulated. People have lost fortunes. Some people, unfortunately, have lost their lives um, because their investments have, have gone south. Many borrowed to um, boost the value of them. This is all topics that we've covered on, on Money Clinic. So consumers need a lot more protection. They need people to stand up for their rights financially. And they need more than anything to have this ability to educate themselves about money because only the richest 5% of people, say, can afford to pay for financial advice from a qualified professional. 
and they're going to make you a few percent richer. The rest of us have to fend for ourselves. And I think that particularly when it comes to long-term savings, investing for retirement, because people haven't got to that stage yet of being 60 and thinking, actually, I haven't got anything in reserve for when I want to stop work. That's starting to happen to more and more people now. But that really is a ticking time bomb in in our society because yeah. all of the risk is on us. If we don't make provision for our future selves now while we're working, we're going to have a really poor um, quality of life when we get to that age. We're going to have to keep working for much longer than we might like to, assuming our health holds out. And that's why I try and not only educate people, but also campaign for for better policy, for policy change, better treatment of people within the system and better protection. If you had to give one piece of advice for someone that is in your shoes, so starting saving money, what is the first, earning money and then hopefully saving money, um, what is the very first thing this young lady or young boy should be doing, should start thinking? Maybe very first action. Mm. Okay, so the biggest secret of the money world is quite boring. Many of them are. And it's spend less than you earn. It's that easy, but also that complicated because anyone living in London, certainly, or a big city, anybody who is just starting out in their careers with, you know, lots of us having to work for free or do internships. This is something that I had to do at the beginning to get into journalism. And it was very, very hard. That's the only period of my life where I have had really significant worries about debts, money coming in. Um, nothing like what many people are experiencing now in the cost of living crisis. But it's it's really, really telling that as more and more and more of us are relying on debt to get us to the end of the month, this is something that's really unsustainable. Mm. Being able to live within your means and generate some kind of surplus every week, every month, even if it's only one pound, that's the key really to transforming your financial future. Now, the sort of levels of need um, we could talk about in the in the pyramid obviously you know providing safe space for for yourself and and, and, your, and your family food light heat etc but then with your spare money if you can build up an emergency fund because then you don't need to pay through the nose to borrow money when thing goes things go wrong then start thinking about saving for particular targets putting money away every week in order to meet the cost of something that happens once a year the obvious one being christmas birthdays, holidays, but also things like insurance. Often if you pay for a policy up front at the beginning of the year, it's a lot cheaper than paying monthly because you're not paying all of the interest on top. Choosing a second-hand car that's less expensive than a brand new one, even though you could get a PCP loan that would give you a really flashy motor. Understanding how the credit and the charges are going to apply, even though you can really easily get credit at the flick of a um, you know, touch touch of a button on your on your phone when you're at the online checkout. Buy now, pay later. Split the payments into three or four. Just being aware that loading yourself up with unnecessary purchases when you could be putting that money towards a better use. It's understanding the opportunity cost of money. Yes, nothing bad is going to happen if you have that online shopping spree. Maybe overextend yourself a bit for for a month. But then think about the good things that could be happening if you were putting that money to work, either by saving it up or when you get a bit more confident, investing it for the future, putting more money into your company pension, which, as I explain in the book, is one of the fastest routes to, to, to boosting your wealth. So there are all of these things that we could be doing with our money, not just spending it.
But I think it takes a lot when it comes to educating ourselves around money. And um, we talk a lot about financial literacy. You are one of the trustees of Flick. The Financial Literacy and Inclusion Campaign. Can you tell me a bit more about Flick and how do you think Flick can help younger people, especially from diverse uh, um, audiences and diverse groups, um, help especially in uh, your area? Okay, so it's two years old now, Flick, the FT's charity, and it was really set up with the mission of boosting financial literacy across the board. But it, it's an FT-backed charity, but it is separate from, from, from the FT, and I am a trustee, as you say. So there are three main groups of people that we especially want to help um, by boosting their financial literacy. Young people um, are the first, women are another, and then minority groups. Obviously, these are three huge terms capturing most of the population, but we had to decide somehow who are the people who are really losing out the most by not having financial literacy. Now, the great thing about targeting young people is that if you start them young, if they've got the tools that they need, then they're hopefully not going to make expensive mistakes as they get older. They're going to be prepared for the financial world and all of the things that the consumer world as well has has to throw at them in terms of temptation um, <laughs> in the means of debt and, and loans and knowing about stuff before it happens, which can be really valuable, like student debt. Now, when I went to university... Um, I didn't have to pay tuition fees. I did have a maintenance loan and I did have a large overdraft. Um, and it took me a few years to get on track financially and pay it all back. But Same. nowadays, you. you're, <laughs> you know, and I thought that was bad. But nowadays, people have got student debts hanging around for 20, 30, maybe even 40 years if they're starting university today. But when you understand how it's taken from you and it's more like a tax than a loan, then you maybe will be not put off going to university, which is what's happened to many people from, from lower income backgrounds. But also you'll start thinking in, you'll start thinking in a, a more considered way about what topics you might want to study, how that creates, how that translates into what career you might do, how much money you could earn from, from doing that. And I think people are thinking much more um, logically now when they apply to go to university there's a lot more interest in apprenticeships there's a lot more interest in sponsor degrees and yeah. maybe really but if degree courses could become shorter um, that's a very interesting idea you would study more intensely but it costs you less money to to do it so so young people then are one of one of the big targets and going into schools and teaching people in schools is the focus of us and many other charitable groups who we work with but where we particularly try and focus our energy is teaching the teachers because at the moment in the United Kingdom, personal finance is on the school curriculum at some schools, but in a very small ad hoc way. There's no exam associated with it. So the schools can kind of teach it how they want and the resources are limited and often the teachers themselves don't feel confident teaching finance. You know, if you're a French teacher, you're a language specialist, you're brilliant. Could I step in and take your French class? Heavens no. Uh, could I do a finance class? Yes. But, you know, you don't have subject teachers who are, who are finance specialists. So that's where we think Flick can really add value for young people. So we're going into schools, delivering workshops, training teachers. And that's been the really big part of the charity's early work. But then also working with women. We've done lots of free online events um, through FT, um, with working with the FT live team. Did a big one for International Women's Day recently, talking about all of the different financial issues that can affect women. And these have been like massively um, popular. 
And we are also doing lots with, um, you know, targeting particular minority groups, like working with um, asylum seekers, again, people who are outside of the financial system. And this extends to raising awareness, writing about these issues um, in the FT, particularly around Christmas time, which is when our seasonal appeal is traditionally um, sought to raise money. And we're very lucky that um, readers are incredibly generous and have donated a lot of money to us in our first two years. And we're, you know, putting it to good use and... We'd love some. We'd love to get some more. And I think it's it's so great to see. You know, um, we have a lot of stereotypes when we're thinking about the financial world. For most women, the financial world is seen as a something separate or something not for you, something um, that is a bit not really accessible. What do you think has been, first of all, the journey that you have seen in so many years at FT? I think we have really changed the way we talk about finance and how we want to as well be seen uh, from uh, uh, women audiences. And we did a lot of initiatives in these terms. I'm thinking about Janet Bot. We talked about that in our podcast and a lot of other tools. But what's the first problem in the financial world that is not making women feeling um, that they can access it or is more a stereotype and is more a storytelling that we are building around it? Well, I think one of the biggest financial problems for women is that as a society, we don't place any value on providing care. Mm. Now, that could be bringing up young children. It could increasingly mean looking after elderly relatives or if you're unlucky, in some cases, both at the same time. And I've got lots of colleagues male and female, who've had to curtail their working hours in order to, you know, look after their elderly mums and dads or, you know, couples nowadays can be much more flexible in, you know, who takes time off when when children are are particularly young, but it is going to have some kind of career impact. What we've seen recently with the British government coming up with these so-called childcare reforms and promising that childcare will get cheaper, they're not really changing the heart of the system, which is still relying on women, especially, it's not just women, but most of the time it is women, to earn less money in order to bring up their children. And even if you're saying that people are going to get 30 free hours or 15 free hours, in practice, it doesn't work like that. You don't get that many hours. It's certainly not free. The private nurseries who are providing these services are cross-subsidising giving free hours when your child turns three by charging people who have got children aged one and two even more money. And this is why childcare is now among the most expensive in the OECD um, regions in, in the UK. And it's absolutely crippling the finances of people who work here at the Financial Times. People who are journalists earning good money are nevertheless finding that childcare is just pricing them out of the jobs market in, in many cases. If you've got a good career and you think, well, actually, I'm in deficit, I'm not earning enough to pay for the amount of childcare that I'm having, then you might think, well, for two years, for three years, I'll tough it out because my career is more valuable. But in many other professions, people are just saying, well, actually, it makes more sense to withdraw my labour from the labour market. And we're seeing the number of women leaving the labour market since the pandemic is really, really rocketing up because of that cost of childcare and the fact that we don't value women's time um, as much as we should do. You've always had this concept of the second shift as well, finishing work, then going home, taking on all of the emotional load that comes with 
being a parent. And frankly, schools could <laughs> make our lives a lot easier. I was talking to a colleague yesterday who said, I've got to go home now and make an Easter bonnet because my my child's school at the last minute has decided to do an Easter bonnet competition. And of course, you know, if you're the mum who doesn't help them make an Easter bonnet, then you're going to feel very inferior. But it's all a pressure on our time. It's all a pressure on whether we think we can then step up to the next stage in our career and go for a promotion. The relationship that you have with your line manager, I think, is the most crucial one to your career if you're a parent, male or female, because their leeway in saying, yes, you can work flexibly, yes, you can work from home two days a week, yes, you can log on after seven o'clock to make up for the fact you've had to take your child to an appointment in the afternoon. If your line manager is somebody who values your talents and respects the fact that we do need to be a bit more adaptable with parents, then your career's not going to suffer, you're going to fly. But there's no guarantee that you're going to get a manager who is sympathetic and enlightened. And I've always been a manager who has been enlightened and has thought we shouldn't discriminate against people because they're parents. And it's always women who get the thin end of the wedge. You know, men are parents too. They don't get this same kind of, you know, got to run off early and get to the nursery pickup. I think since the pandemic, I've noticed more men doing nursery yeah. drop off and pick up than ever before. And I do think that that's fantastic and that the burden at home it's being shared more equally between couples, but companies need to wake up to it too. Shared parental leave, it's becoming more common, but it's still like, you know, a single digit percentage of people who are choosing to do it. Having more enlightened policies when it comes to parental leave and looking at part-time jobs, because so many women to make the childcare work, dropping their hours and going part-time. If you go part-time, you tend to get stuck in a rut. You're staying in the same job for longer. And any economist will tell you the easiest way to boost your pay is to switch company. But if you're working part time, the thing about the line manager, you think I might not get this relationship replicated as well yeah. in another company. So you stay doing what you're doing. You don't get promoted. You're not moving around. And so this is all contributing on top of the gender pay gap, the gender pensions gap, the gender finance gap as it's now being called, that's contributing even more to keeping our pay and our prospects down um, as women. And this is one of the issues, Virginia, that I feel the most passionate about um, and really, re really want to shout about um, yeah. louder and louder. I don't think the government's childcare reforms are going to work. I don't think they go anywhere near enough because they fail to address this fundamental problem, which is that we don't value care. We, we are not recognising that what women and men, but mostly women, are doing has a value in society. And that needs to change. Definitely reading uh, um, and listening to good quality content as the one of your money clinic and everything you do here at FT can give you a lot of tips um, where to invest, in which direction to invest and what to look of things that you don't really know about that are out there but might, might, might be interesting. Let's say that, uh, you know, I'm a young um, employee. I have some money aside and I, I have the same, um, you know, um, feeling, curiosity. I have that sense of like, mm, that company, mm, very interesting. It's going in the right direction. What are the kind of actions as a private investor, as a person without any advice or whatever, that you would, you know, suggest to take? I'm interested in this company. I'd like to invest. What, is it possible? Like it is so um, accessible. What's uh, what are the actions? And I know you talk a lot about this, but uh, let's figure it out for our young listeners. 
Okay. So the riskiest investments that you can make are when you are picking single company stocks. For the simple reason, you put all of your money into shares in that company. If they do brilliantly, hurrah, you know, your whole portfolio has, has risen in value. But if they do terribly, then, oh dear, you've lost you've lost all your money. So the number one rule is that you need diversity. You need to spread your investment over lots of different companies, but also not just companies, stocks, equities, all of these terms are interchangeable, but also other assets. Bonds, big part of the market, although slightly controversial at the moment because they haven't had a good run. Um, commodities, you know, investing in like real stuff. Property, both residential and commercial property, you know, that's a different asset class. All of these things move up and down um, in, in different cycles. Things like gold, um, very, very popular at the moment because times are uncertain and the gold price always rises in, in times of uncertainty. So you need to be spread across a lot of different assets, a lot of different geographies. And for most people... Um, without wanting to think about these things all the time too much, the easiest way to do that is to buy exposure to the whole market using something called an, an index fund or a tracker fund. And there are lots of different ones that you can buy through investment platforms or even through your pension where you're getting that broad based um, exposure to lots and lots of different things. That's what forms the bulk of my own investment portfolio. But then I do have smaller amounts of money. Some people call it like play money. Um, I wouldn't necessarily see it as, as as playing, but having started at the FT on the Investors Chronicle, which is our share tipping magazine, I have always been interested in the prospects of new companies, especially smaller companies that are coming out because small companies, they're really interesting because they've got the possibility to grow into large companies. But the problem with investing in small companies is that a lot of them never get to that stage. Yeah. Um, they fall off the cliff, as it were. So you need to diversify if you're investing in small companies. There are lots of different funds that target small companies, often with maybe a tech-themed um, focus yeah. or a medical-themed focus. So reading the Investor's Chronicle, reading the Financial Times, the FT Money section, which is what I'm in at the weekend, this will give you exposure to lots of different ideas. But then the thinking that you do yourself can often be about the thematics. So I'm looking and noticing that lots more um, technological products favouring a female market are coming into play. And I'm thinking, OK, well, this is an interesting theme. How can I get access to that theme through an existing company. Um, is, is it possible? You could look at things like crowdfunding, which again, very, very risky because you're putting money into one um, company. But if it's a small percentage of your overall portfolio and that's something that you've researched and you feel like I can afford to to, to lose this money um, if, if, it, if, it, if I can't get it out yeah. again, because these investments are often quite liquid yeah. in, in the really small ones, then it could work out for you. It could not. But it can work for your education and just thinking, well, this is a theme. This is a trend. Where else am I seeing this happen? And how could I apply this to my um, in investing life in, in the future in a, in a way that could, could make sense for me? Claire is not just everything that we talked about, but she's also a book writer. Yeah, and she just published What They Don't Teach You About Money, Seven Habits to Unlock Financial Independence. How different and how expensive is for your time to write such a book? Well, how I, was it? <laughs> I had to do it quite quickly. So I was approached to write this book um, last sort of June, July. Um, and the publisher at Penguin sent me a message over Twitter. And I just thought that it was a wind up. I, I thought it was like a fraud. Right. <laughs> would you like to, would you like <laughs> yeah. to write a book for Penguin? I just sort of looked at it and thought... 
Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, she followed up again in a All month's right. time and said, I don't know if you if you if you got my message. Um, and I was like, right. Oh, OK. This is a genuine approach. So I've always thought that I would never write a book about money for the simple fact that I've never really wanted to read one. I mean, I don't know how many books you might have read about money, but they do tend to have a few things in common, which is they're like manuals. You know, there's like lists and lists yeah. of instructions um, and explanations. So it's a bit dry. Um, there's lots of this. No, 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 no. <laughs> Finger wag, I call it. <laughs> yeah. um, shouldn't do that, shouldn't do that. Which puts people off. Um, and also, they're bloody boring. Um, you just think, you know, I'd much rather pick up a murder mystery. That's much more my, my cup of tea. So I've always thought money books, stick to the videos, um, stick to the podcast. This is yeah. what brings money alive. And they said, well, no, well, can you just write, write like you speak? Come up with a book that tells all of the stories that you tell, sets money into a real context. So I said, OK, but only if I can write it in a way that it would appeal to the kind of person who would never, ever buy a money book. And that was originally my idea for the title, a money book for people who would never, ever buy a money book. But they decided that was too long. So I came up with what they don't teach you about money, because ty tying into the financial yeah. literacy hat that yeah. I wear at Flick, nobody teaches this stuff. We have to teach ourselves. And yet it's of absolutely fundamental importance. It's probably one of the more valuable yeah. life skills. But the basic principles um, in the book, the habits that I'm talking about, none of it is rocket science. But I'm explaining it in a way that anyone can understand because we can take control um, and we can educate ourselves. And I hope that this will be the starting point, yeah. not the finishing point. Thank you so much, Claire. I really loved our conversation. Second part of our talent show, we got here in the studio with uh, our amazing Claire Barrett, Sia and uh, Navia. Sia, over to you. Yeah, thank you so much. It's great to be here. I'm Sia. I'm a second year business management student at King's College, and I'm also vice president for Case of the Women in Business Society, Woo! Um, as well as a student intern at the Danish UK Association, as I'm from Denmark. And um, yeah, this summer I'll be joining Deutsche Bank for an internship, so I'll get experience in the corporate world as well. Um, anyways, my question to you is, um, what is the most important skill that a successful leader should possess? And how have you honed this skill? Mm. I would say empathy. You've got to be able to put yourself in the other person's shoes. And if you're in a job where you've got to tell other people what to do, which most jobs are at the end of the day, if you're in the management sphere, why are they going to listen to you? If you want them to listen to you, they've got to respect you. And if you want people to respect you, then you need to make an effort to understand them. So hence, we come back to, to, to empathy and understanding the different people on your team and the contribution that they all make, the contribution that they all make, the different levels of support or encouragement that they might need. And I think that I'm, I'm not a man manager. Sorry, that's a terrible term. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a manager at the FT um, at the moment, but I have been for most of my um, career here in the past and I think that my most important job as a manager is giving people feedback and saying thank you thank you is the most under uttered term um, by the management class and it's wrong and it costs nothing and it used to be my habit when I was an editor on the news desk to on the bus home uh, normally about half past eight at night having had no dinner and desperate for a glass of wine um, would be to send at least a minimum of like three texts or emails to people who had really really pushed the boat out that day because when you're making a newspaper 
news is happening all around you, different sort of news bombs are going off and you're often like pleading with people to, you know, drop that piece that they're writing and do something for the for the for the front of the paper or turn something over quickly that we can put out on a on a Saturday. So always saying thank you for doing that. This was brilliant. It might not be to the writer, it might be to the person who found the picture. It might be the person on the stats team who pulled together all the data and got it all up online and looking beautiful. But they're all people in your team. They're all giving different inputs. And that's how people will want to work for you. Because others will say, Sia is a really good boss. She listens to me. She doesn't always do what I want her to do, but I feel like something's going in and that she understands and that she's a fair person, she's non-hierarchical, and that's what will get you ahead. Because if people want to work with you, the big bosses are going to notice that. And I think, really, we spend more of our waking lives at work than we do with our families, with our partners, with our children. So if we can have a nice time while we're here, (laughs) that's a good thing to aim for. Yeah, no, thank you so much for that. I think it's really insightful and really good piece of advice. Navia, over to you. Thank you. Hi, Claire. My name's Navia, and I'm a final year business management student at King's College London, and I also lead KCL Women in Business as its president. Excellent. Thank you. And uh, professionally, I've gained summer internship experiences at EY and Deloitte. And also, I started a startup in Movement Women's Microfinance all the way back in India. And I work for VC Fund wow. called Beyond the, Beyond the Billion. And they invest in women-led startups. Um, so this question is really close to my heart. Women entrepreneurs continue to face those barriers to capital. And they're underrepresented at many levels of the financial system. So what kind of tangible steps can businesses take to improve progress? Well, there are lots of ways that we can measure what businesses think they should be doing. And certainly the campaign to get more women on boards, more women in positions of power, um, making the decisions, which is a good thing, has enjoyed some success. I do worry about how much of it is lip service, how much we sort of forcing women into a male corporate world, which still revolves around many kind of patriarchal um, systems of, of you know of, of power and and holding on to it how much are we really listening to um, women and more diverse voices in the workforce and how much is that influencing the decisions that are being made at the top of companies so I think it's great you know the first step we've got more women sitting around the table that's good um, some companies are using things like quotas um, and discouraging um, certain applicants from applying from certain roles and encouraging certain other applicants. I don't know for sure if I fully agree with that. I'm a, you know, I'm a big believer in the democracy of talent, but equally, you've got to do something. Um, you know, it's like diversity initiatives. Lots of people get very strung up by the idea of diversity and inclusion. They think it's box tick. They think it's, you know, being woke, whatever you want to call it. But you've got to just take the risk. Take the risk of, you know, looking a bit silly and doing something wrong if you do get it wrong. But if we don't try, we're never going to change. We're never we're never going to learn. And I think the pandemic in a horrible way has the silver lining of it is it has really forced managements to think, okay, well actually, you know what? We don't need everybody working in the office every single day of the week. We can survive um, with other models. We can trust people to get on with the job. We can use technology to make work fit better around 
the pressures of modern life. And it's not been up to the individual manager to block or say no, because you get to know within companies who's pro-flexible working and, and who's anti it. And it's forced us to think differently. So I think if that's the one thing that we can take um, as, as a good thing, then that's good enough for me. <laughs> Thank you so much, ladies. And of course, Claire, it was a real pleasure to have you today on the show and share the conversation together. This has been The Talent Show, which is produced by the FT Talent Team, Aya Al-Shihabi, and me, Virginia Stani. Our podcast producer, editor, and sound engineer is Arturo Ochoa, and our social media producer is Letizia Clementi. Our music is by Dennis Kishuk. Check out all of the Talent Show episodes at fttalent.ft.com, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and follow FT Talent on socials for updates. Until next time, and keep listening. Keep listening.